mistake. It's not revenge he's after. It's a reckoning. A reckoning. That's what our theme's going to be today. And a reckoning, if, if it's, you're not familiar with that term, it, if people are talking about a reckoning, they're, they're talking about a day or a time when people will be forced to deal with an unpleasant situation that they have not up until this point. So welcome. First time that I've gotten to speak outside to, with you guys. I'm excited about it. I want to thank the tech team for all their hard work to make this happen. Hello to everybody inside. Sorry we weren't in there with you right now, but you should have come to 9 o'clock. I was in there. Anyway, we're glad to have you. Welcome. So, uh, I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, can everybody hear good with the rain? All right. I'll, I'll try to speak clearly. My name's Rick Trout, and I am among you to serve. That's just kind of what I do. Um, you're going to discover as we go through our time together here that I'm not really much of a preacher. Um, we have some good preachers here at the church, but I, I don't include myself as one of those. I'm more of a storyteller. And that's what I want to do today. You know, we've been going through Hosea, and we're still in Hosea. We're in chapter 8. And um, but I'm going to switch the script today. I want to do it a little bit different. I'm going to just pick a few key verses, and then I want to tell a story that I think will accentuate or make those verses come alive. You see, that I think that, that all of our lives come to us like a story, don't they? I mean, it unfolds like a drama, doesn't it? Each day has a beginning and an end, there are all sorts of characters, all sorts of situations and settings. A year can go by and feels like a chapter of a novel. Sometimes it seems like tragedy. Sometimes it's like comedy. Most of the time, it feels like a soap opera. But no matter what happens, it's a story. So. As we began the study of Hosea, the book of Hosea, we started with a story, the story of Hosea and Gomer, right? You remember way back weeks ago? And God called the prophet Hosea, he said, I want you to go and I want you to marry a prostitute. And he said this so that they could set a physical example for the people of Israel of how they had become unfaithful to God. They'd broken their covenant with him. Well, the first three chapters or so, it was all about Hosea and Gomer. Their relationship, the ups and downs. Gomer being unfaithful, Hosea going after her. And then it shifted. And we started getting into some prophecies and some predictions and some warnings. And throughout all of these messages, we've tried to emphasize that not only was Hosea's words meant for the people of ancient Israel, but they're also meant for us today. They apply to us today, but we find it hard, I think, to, to put ourselves into that story, don't we? I mean, we have talked about some really heavy topics. You know, there's been sexual promiscuity, idolatry, 
rejection of God. Things that most of us don't want to relate ourselves to, don't want to identify with. That's something that happened thousands of years ago, or is it? So today, I want us to look at a real-life story. It's sort of a parallel, sort of a real-life Hosea and Gomer, if you will. Thank you for the rain slowing down. And um, I hope that you'll see that, that God's Word, Scripture, the Bible, in its entirety, is just this one big, beautiful love story of God's unrelenting pursuit of us. And we have a part to play. We're being invited to step up into something so much greater than what we are or what we can imagine. So today I want to give you a story. I want to tell you a story about a couple, a couple that I've known for years. We'll call them John and Jane. The names are changed to protect the guilty. Now, I grew up with John. We've known each other for years, and we've stayed close as the years have gone by. And every story has a backstory, right? Now, we don't know what happened with Hosea and Gomer individually before we were thrust into their story at the beginning of this book. But there was things that happened in their lives. Well, the same is true for, for Jane and John. There's a backstory that we don't have time to go into. But there's something very important that we need to keep in mind as we move forward from here. And that's the fact that, that Jane and John both considered themselves to be Christians, followers of Christ, believers. Now, Jane grew up in the church. She went through confirmation. She was baptized. She was a good little Methodist girl growing up in the church, had a good, solid Christian family. John did not. No church, no real Christian influence. And the family was dysfunctional, as you might imagine. And these two meet and fall in love, but they come from such different worlds. But they can overcome it. We can overcome this, right? So we're going to pick up the story when, when Jane and John are in their 20s. Okay, they've been married for a little while. Two kids, an orange cat, a black dog, house in the suburbs, a couple of cars. Life looks good. John's got a good job. Jane's a stay-at-home mom. And everything seems fine. They're just plugging along, living the American dream. So they thought. Now, this went on for a number of years. But John... John had a wandering spirit. John was one of these guys, I remember well, that, that he, he could build compartments in his life to separate different things in different places for himself. And remember, he said he was a Christian. And the reason he said that was when we had, it was the year after we graduated from high school, it was in March of the next year, and we were in this little youth revival thing at a, at a church that we'd been invited to by some friends who were believers. And um, John walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, 
Got the Bible. Pat on the back and a handshake. Son, you're a Christian now. Good luck. And that's pretty much what happened. John walked out of that church and back into the world that he came from and had no guidance, no direction, just didn't get it. So in their marriage, they were, they were trying to go to church. It wasn't very successful. Well, about 10 years in, John falls. He has an affair, which brings us to verse 1. The people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. You see, John had broken the covenant, the covenant of marriage, a sacred covenant given to us by God. But John didn't understand it that way. You see, he didn't think anything in life really lasted, that nobody really stuck around for any length of time, that it was all just transient. You know, you, you do what feels good till it doesn't feel good, and then you do something else. It's kind of John's attitude. And it was tough. Well, the affair didn't last long. It um, kind of kept it from the children. The kids were still small. But it, it made a scar in that marriage, as you can imagine. John apologized. He said he was sorry. Jane granted him forgiveness, and they moved forward. Well, there was counseling secular counseling, I'll point out, that um, tried to help them to, to come together to communicate better, tried to help them to understand what they were dealing with spiritually. The, the secular world doesn't do that. They can't do that. I remember Jane one time telling me, she said, my counselor actually said, well, why don't you go have an affair just to even the playing field? Good advice for trying to rescue a marriage. Now, Jane didn't heed that advice, thank goodness. And in the meantime, John is, is seeing a psychologist once a week, and he's going to this guy's office, and he's pouring his heart out, and he's asking questions. Why is it in my head, in my heart, this, 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 when I behave this way, it doesn't really seem to bother me. I don't feel bad about it. Why? So the psychologist was, he was good. He, could, he explained to John, that, well, these are the reasons because of dysfunction in your upbringing. You know, this is your natural reaction to the world around you. Okay, so what do I do about it? Well, this is just who you are. You just got to deal with it. Again, not a whole lot of help. Different counselors, different time Time passed on. <clears throat> Things were tentative. It was tough. John fell again. And all the while, all the while, if I'd asked John, I said, John, are you saved? Do you believe in Jesus? Are you going to heaven? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, don't you remember? I, I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I got, yeah, I got my get-out-of-hell-free card. Isn't that all you have to do? Isn't that all you're supposed to do? Verse 2 and 3. Israel cries out to me, O oh, our God, we acknowledge you, but Israel has rejected what is good. 
That was John. He had rejected what was good. Oh, he said he had knowledge of God. He knew who God was, but he had no relationship. It never occurred to him that he could have. So they've trudged on, on through life, on through counseling, on through whatever they could grab a hold of to keep them together, to make a family out of it. But John's, he just couldn't be faithful. And he wandered again. This time, Jane's like, it's enough. I'm done. I'm done. She told me, she said, I told him, if this is the life that you want, then go get it. Just go and live it. Get away from here. Get away from your children and go live it. So John left. He moved out. At that point in time, Jane is trying to hold the kids and the family together, manage the household. John's just having a party time. He's just consumed with work and with pleasure and with partying. Kept, kept those compartments tightly closed around his heart so that he could go over here and he could spend some time with his kids and act like he was dad. Then he could slam that compartment shut and he could go over here and be with someone else and act like that was fine. But the compartments got too many. He got to where he, he couldn't manage them much anymore. And, it, and, and there was this sort of darkness that, that came over him. His friends could sense it. His co-workers could sense it. But nobody said anything. You know, it's, John's okay. It's his life. You know, nobody wanted to get involved. But John was struggling. He was trying to find some way out. In verse 4, it says they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. That's what John was doing. He was looking everywhere, grabbing hold of everything and anything that the world had to offer that he thought would make life better for, for him. Because it was all about him. His selfishness, his arrogance, that's where he was. <clears throat> But as that darkness increased and increased, he began to really feel it. He began to get a sense of, I can't, I can't continue to do this. I go over here and I don't belong there and I hurt these people and I go back home and I, I hurt these people and I, I can't do it. And he actually came to the point where he was contemplating taking his own life. It got that bad. It got that dark. And then something happened. You see, ironically, while John is in this dark place, Jane is at home praying for John to die. Literally praying that he would die. Because she told me, she said, if he just dies, if God just takes him, then the children and I can mourn and we can move on. But as long as he is alive, as long as I have to deal with him, this pain is never going to go away. Never. So Jane's 
in one place praying for John's death. John is in another place sitting on the side of his bed with a gun in his hand, thinking about making that prayer a reality. Then something, something clicked. Some little glimmer from somewhere. John said, he said, suddenly it became crystal clear to me. You have to go home. You just have to go home. So he called Jane. He said, I need to come home. Well, you can imagine her reaction. I don't know, John. I'm not sure I want you to come home. Her family, her friends, everyone had been telling her, kick this guy to the curb. Be done with him. He has done this for a decade, over and over and over. Let him be. Verse 14 says, Israel has forgotten his maker. That's where John found himself. At this point in time, he, he not only had forgotten his maker, he had lost himself. He told me, he said, I realized suddenly that I ceased to exist apart from my wife and these children. That's who I am. That's who I should be. And apart from that, I'm, I'm nothing. I got to go home. Well, some time passed. Jane let him come home. Now, I'm convinced, after knowing these people for some time, that, that Jane somehow saw something in John that no one else could see, not even him. Something that was worth fighting for. So he came home. And they moved forward. They got involved a little more in a, in a local church. And they were, they were faithful. You know, the, the kids are now teenagers and they're moving on. But I remember John telling me, he said, you know, man, when I go to this church and I sit out among the people, I look around and they all, they all seem like they got it together. They're, they're nodding their heads and they're raising their hands and they're, they act like they understand what this guy up front's saying. And I don't. I don't get it. I don't belong here. I, this is foreign to me and I don't understand. I'm not comfortable here. But he kept, he kept going. He kept moving forward. They would meet with the pastor and have discussions about their life and about marriage and things and John said, I still just feel like I'm on the outside of this, looking in. Like I'm, I'm, not, I'm just floating above this whole scenario, and I can't get in there. Well, they tried a different church. It was a, just a coincidental visit. They came to another church. And the pastor was up front, and he was talking about grace and mercy and forgiveness redemption, reconciliation. Now these are terms that were totally foreign to John. All he'd ever heard and felt was guilt and condemnation and 
you're not good enough. Well, this felt different. You know, I remember he, he told Jane when they left, he said, this is the first church service I've been to where I have left feeling better than when I got there. There's something to this. So they kept coming back. The pastor at that church befriended them, came and walked alongside them, helped them with some of their struggles. And in one of their conversations, John said, this, this, I'll never forget this statement. The pastor told John, he said, John, everyone wants a Savior, but nobody wants a Lord. John said, he just took a dagger and ripped open my soul because that was me. That was me. I didn't want a Lord, somebody to tell me how to live my life. But I didn't want a Savior, he said. I didn't want to go to hell. But he kept coming to church. The pastor kept coming alongside them. Then one week after the service, the pastor came up to John and he said, John, I want you to give me 72 hours of your life. 70, 72 hours of my life? What? He said, yeah. I just want 72 hours out of one of your weeks. What for? Well, I want you to go on this, this men's retreat. What kind of retreat? Well, it's, it's a Christian retreat. Well, I need a little more than that. Well, I, I just think it would be good. I think you would appreciate going. I think it would make a difference for, for you and Jane. John's like, yeah, I, I don't know. Sounds a little strange to me. This whole church thing I'm just getting used to. So now you want to send me off to a retreat. And I don't even know what that is. So, yeah, I'll think about it. So John, he, he put it off. He procrastinated. But he finally decided, okay, I'll go. We both went on this retreat. Now, it was a bit strange. The pastor picked us up, drove us to this place out in the country on a Thursday evening and dropped us off and left. We had a sleeping bag and a pillow. Couldn't take a cell phone, couldn't have wristwatch, had no contact with the outside world. For 72 hours, we have lost our minds, buddy. I don't know what this is going to be. And we found ourselves there in a room full of 30 or 40 total strangers, all men, and they're singing and praising and clapping their hands, and I'm like, yeah, okay, this is kind of weird, but we'll go with it. The next day, we sat in a little conference room, and we heard people give talks on grace and forgiveness and mercy, and what was really surprising was that each and every talk they were talking about themselves they were telling their story and I, I remember John saying this is it I found my people everybody here is broken as much or worse than I am this is where I fit finally I get it I get it Friday passed, Saturday morning, 
Saturday afternoon, they called us all into a little chapel. They, they never told you what was coming ahead or, you know. So they called us all into a little chapel, and we sat down in folding chairs. It's just a very plain little place. And the, the, the guy that was leading the thing, he got up, and he said, Gentlemen, this is your opportunity to respond. Your opportunity to respond to everything that you've been hearing and feeling and experiencing over the past 48 hours. No pressure. It's your chance. We're going to have communion. And he took a loaf of bread and he, he placed it on a table. And he took an empty basket and set it beside the bread. He lit two candles that illuminated a, a small cross on the wall. And some soft music was playing and the lights were dim. And he said, now, you come, you take a piece of bread, and you tell God whatever it is that you want him to take from you, what you want to be rid of, and then you put it in the basket. So we sat there and we sat there and we listened. Man after man went up, poured out their hearts, some of the most horrendous things that I have ever heard confessed out loud in a group of people. But there was no judgment, there was no condemnation, there was freedom in that. John was squirming. He didn't want to get out of that seat. He, I, I can't do this, I just can't do this. But finally he did. He walked up there, he grabbed that piece of bread, and he just looked at that cross. And he got down on his knees. And out loud, he said, God, if you are who you say you are, then take this stuff from me. Take my anger. Take my arrogance. Take my selfishness. Take my lust. Take all of this stuff that is killing me and destroying my family. Take it now because I'm done. I'm just done. I can't do it anymore. And he dropped that piece of bread in that basket. And he turned and he walked away. In that moment, in that very instant, James' prayer was answered. John died right there on his knees. The man that got up was not the same John. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what happened with Hosea and Gomer, does it? It doesn't give us any clue as to how this all worked out. Did, did Gomer turn to God, repent of her ways, and come back to Hosea willingly and faithfully? Did Hosea keep her as his wife? We don't know. And we'll finish out the whole book of Hosea, and we still won't know what happened. But I told you I was going to tell you a story today. So would you like to know what happened to John and Jane? Anybody got a clue what's going on? Well, that man, that man that had his day of reckoning in that little chapel in the woods stands here before you. Most of you have figured it out already, I know. 
But I tell it the way I tell it because that guy that died back there is still out in the woods there somewhere dead. Fifteen years later, I stand here before you to tell you Jesus suffered his day of reckoning on the cross for you and I. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. For you and I, we deserved it. John deserved it. I deserved it. I should have hung on that cross. I should have paid the price for what I had done. But I don't have to. Jesus did. And if we'll accept that, if we'll let go of ourselves, if we'll tear down the walls and the compartments and the boxes in our lives and around our heart and our soul, he will gladly come in and make us brand new. And not only will he make us brand new, but he'll take even the nastiness of my life and use it for his glory and his honor, just like he has for my wife and I. In just a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate 43 years together. She's my Hosea. I was her Gomer, but not anymore. You see, one day, there's going to be another reckoning. When Jesus comes back, there'll be another reckoning. We'll all be called into account for the things that we've done or the things that we've not done. But there won't be another chance. So if today, if today you feel something moving in your heart and your spirit, if there's, if there's something that you just need to lay down, then I pray, I pray that you won't miss this opportunity, that this can be your day of reckoning. Just let it go. He's faithful. He loves you. He's there. And he won't ever leave you. Trust me. He won't ever leave you. So let's pray. Father God, you are the creator of all things. You are the sustainer of the universe. You take the darkness and make it light. You take the brokenness and heal it. You take lives that are in a shambles and build them back together stronger than they could have ever imagined they could be. I ask you now, Father, I ask you for your blessings over these people. If there are hearts out there that feel the tug, if there are hearts out there that, that need to say yes to you that haven't, or if there are those who've said yes, but they've wandered, or maybe they're like John and they just, they know who you are, but they don't really know you. Let this be the day when things begin to change. We thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace, for your love and your forgiveness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.